so I'm sitting in this, I'm standing in this grocery store and it's been a long time since I've seen Americans and I hear an American accent and I'm like, oh, Americans, right? It's been about two or three weeks since GoFan has been overseas, which on this trip feels like eternity. He's hit that point while traveling when anything from home is comforting. A slice of pizza, a drink with ice in it, even just the taste of cinnamon. And so he's in this grocery store, browsing the aisles, when he sees a group of Americans. It was this group of either two or three guys. And so I go up to talk to them. And before I talk, he sees this look in their eyes. They don't seem particularly excited to see another American. And then he remembers, right, this is Congo and I'm black. What they see of me coming up to them is just another Congolese person because that's what I am. They just see another black guy who's going to come bother them and ask them for something. And you can see this like shutting down of like, ugh. And then the second that I say something and my American accent comes out, they're like, oh, we can talk to you. You know, like they don't say that, but you see it. Wait, why didn't I matter before I was American? You're listening to The Power Is Out, and I'm Austin Danhouse. I'm filling in this week for Gofen, who you just heard, telling me about an encounter he had with a group of white Americans while traveling in the Congo in 2009. It was a pretty pivotal trip for Gofen, and one that set him on the path to becoming a lawyer. In this episode, I'm helping him tell that story of how he spent the better part of a decade training to be and then working as a lawyer before leaving it all behind. Now, most people who know Gofen know that he cares a lot about advocacy, about standing up for others. But what's not immediately apparent is how that passion comes from a part of his past that's deeply personal. His struggle as a teenager to figure out the protocols of race in the spaces around him, especially at school and at church. It was constantly just like, you don't fit in. I would hear often, oh, you're not really black. You're an Oreo. You're, you're, you're black on the outside, but white on the inside. Classmates would say stuff like that. Man, you're not, you're not black. Or like, go back to Africa. Gofen had never been to Africa. He was born in Indiana and moved to the South in middle school. He grew up in a black church and then a white church and went to a largely black and white high school. But despite all of that, from pretty early on, the recurring message was very clear. He never quite acted like he was supposed to. In 1999 and 2001, no one was talking about like there being many f- different facets to what a black person can be or look like. And I feel like it was like, if you talk the way that I talk, then you're not black. Do you remember having a strong desire to be connected to to either of those groups at a young age? Or did you go back and forth between where you felt it might be most comfortable to fit in? Uh, so that's a hard question. <laughs> um, so I, I remember this instance. We were still living in Indiana and we went to Black Church. And I just remember like... <laughs> 
<laughs> Apparently, back in the day, I was really ashy. <laughs> and so I remember like other kids like making fun of me for that. It was like being ashy and then having really nappy hair, which is kind of like... I'm not ashy anymore, but I feel like my hair is generally nappy. <laughs> but like, I remember that then. I remember having this feeling of like, I don't want to be like made fun of. And so when I moved to Tennessee, I always had this feeling of like, I'm never black enough. But amidst the competing narratives about who GoFin should be, what shaped him most were the moments of grace. The people who showed up along the way to give him a hand. People like his friend, Steven. I met this guy, Steven. He rode my bus. He was in eighth grade with me. And whenever people made fun of me, he would stand up for me. As I kind of like grew to understand who I was as a person, what came with that was this like really strong sense and desire of like defending other people. That feeling would start to take shape in college. In 2006, Gofen saw Invisible Children, a documentary that told the story of a group of kids in northern Uganda. Hundreds of kids who slept in bus parks, schools, and hospitals so they wouldn't be kidnapped and forced to become child soldiers. Their stories were harrowing. There was this one kid in particular, Jacob, whose older brother had been killed by rebel soldiers. Jacob said he and his younger brother were all alone now, with no one taking care of them and that he'd rather die than stay on earth. Jacob's words cut right to the heart. I kept asking myself afterwards, like, why is no one there to protect these kids? Like, why is no one standing up for them? We all have these moments in our lives, the ones we can't come back from. For me, it was stepping foot into my third grade classroom as a first year teacher just out of college, seeing the faces of my students, I knew I'd spend the rest of my life serving young people, working in education. And for Gofen, it was hearing Jacob's story. The raw emotion in Jacob's voice kindled something inside of him. I just knew that, like, that's what I wanted to do with my life. Be a person who is speaking up for those people and, do and doing something about those situations. After seeing Invisible Children, Gofen spends the rest of his college years studying all things humanitarian. He goes to grad school to get more training in international human rights. But the decision that will affect his career the most, he makes in 2009 during his first trip to Congo. Here's Gofen. <laughs> the day that we're flying into Kinshasa, the capital, uh, looking out through the plane to try to see like the city lights and my mom being like, <laughs> trying to see the city lights. That's funny. <laughs> Then being picked up at the airport and taken to my aunt's house where we stayed and it being pitch black and there not being electricity and eating, I've, I'm fairly sure we ate omelets that night and by candlelight. And it was like, I didn't see what Congo looked like until the morning. And we go outside and it's like, dang, it's like bright and green. Like this looks like Africa. Even though Gofen had never been before, being in Congo in some ways felt like coming home. The culture, the food, the music, it all felt so familiar. It was great. It was weird as I like no longer had this feeling of like feeling outside. Like I, like I went to Congo and like people could say my name when they read it, right? I was like, oh, right, because I'm Congolese. Everyone's black and I'm black too. 
<laughs> I don't know, and it sounds like dumb, but it was like, yeah, right. This totally makes sense. Like everything like makes sense. But the good always comes with the bad. And Congo was no different. The days without running water, the indefinite power outages, and moments like the one in the grocery store at the start of our story, where Gofen's standing in the aisle, hoping to speak to that group of Americans, but can't, until he proves he's like one of them. On the surface, it might not seem like a big deal, but what Gofen felt in the seconds before those guys realized he was an American is something he's never forgotten. In that moment, Gofen caught a glimpse of what it felt like to be Congolese. It meant being seen by the outside world not as a person deserving of dignity, but just as a nameless, voiceless other. Even when it came to Congolese politics, he saw how people in power used the law to abuse the vulnerable. In Congo, lawyers exist to extort you. So like the only reason you go to a lawyer is like, because it's like the last, last, last option. This is what convinced him to go to law school, to get a practical skill set that he could actually use to help people. After the break, Gofin heads to law school, and a few years later, his life starts falling apart. What happened after we get back? Coming back from Congo, Gofen heads to law school, focusing as much as he can on human rights and international law. His family also starts a small nonprofit in Kinshasa, and over the next few years, he learns more and more about becoming an advocate. But, and this is important, he's doing all of this at the same time that American politics are getting increasingly turbulent. In summer 2013, as Gofen is studying homicide for the bar exam, a Florida jury issues its verdict in the Trayvon Martin trial sparking the creation of Black Lives Matter. In 2014, just days before Gofen files his first lawsuit as a junior attorney at the law firm, the governor of Missouri declares a state of emergency in anticipation of what would become days of protests in Ferguson, Missouri. In 2015, just months after Gofen's first oral argument, the picture of three-year-old Alain Cordy goes viral. You know the one. The photo of the Syrian boy whose body washed ashore on a beach in Turkey. With each event, the national conversation gets more and more heated. At the same time, work's getting difficult for Gofen. One of the crappy parts of being an attorney is billing your time. At Gofen's job, he had to record his time in six minute intervals. He had timers to keep track of everything. Phone call with client, six minutes. Drafting an email to opposing counsel, 18 minutes. Revising legal brief, 42 minutes. When he went to the bathroom, he'd turn off the timer. If he forgot to, he'd subtract the six minutes he'd lost. So he constantly found himself thinking, you're wasting time, you're not working hard enough. And on top of that, Gofen was trying to manage the nonprofit he and his family started in Congo, which led to weeks like this one in 2014, when Gofen headed back to Kinshasa with his mother and brother. Chaotic. That's how that, that's how that whole week was for me. Just chaotic. Uh, of like a very like emotionally charged 
trip. This is Wamba Mputubwele, Gofen's younger brother. Because there was the good and the bad just all rolled in. One night after visiting family, Gofen, his brother, and his cousin get into a taxi bus to head home. It's like a van. A van that should fit, what, eight people max? There's like 20 people inside. And instead of van normal seats for the van, there are benches. They take off all of the seats and there's just benches there. And like the sliding door for the van is open. And so there's a guy who stands on that, who, who like calls out the stops. And he's yelling, looking for people who are trying to get on their bus or whatever. When they're full, you know, he taps the side of the, the van and the, the driver keeps driving. So we're in there and um, this lady needed to get out. You know, they make a stop and this lady starts to like get out of the van. The car starts going. And she hasn't finished coming out of the van yet. And she's like in stepping in out process. Like the van is moving and she hasn't landed yet. Okay, so she fell out and I believe the back wheel went over her. I don't know if it was her leg or I don't know what part of her it was, but the back wheel. I just remember the dunk, you know, the going over. And everyone's like, everyone in the van is like, in Lingala is like, stop, stop, stop. And then the guy, like the dude that taps the van, he got up and looked. Like, I guess he was just, you know, nothing to see. Just, all right, let's keep going. And I was like, wow, keep going, really? It was just this moment of like, I, oh man, it's really hard to explain, but like, I, I like I like look at my brother. And I looked at my brother and I was like, well, what in the world? And we just kept going. And I'm like, what? No. Like you don't treat somebody like that. You know what I'm saying? You, you just got ran over. Somebody just ran over you. Like really, you need to be taken to a hospital. Really, like that's what happened here. We're not gonna check on her. We're not gonna see if she's all right. We just just keep driving. Like nothing happened. Like, it wasn't significant or anything. Why are people, human beings, made in the image of God, living in situations like this? It doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't make sense. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that, ever. I have to find some way to contribute and, like, make things better and, like, use the voice and use the position that the Lord has put me in to help bring the gospel to bear on the world that we live in, in a really practical way. Coming home from that trip, Gofen was completely wiped. Between anxieties about work, raging national debates that felt personal, and the fact that he had seen someone almost die and everyone act like it was normal, he just felt overwhelmed. He pressed on the best he could, but after a while, something just snapped. And suddenly, I watched Gofen's joy that part of him that everyone who knows him appreciates so much break down into despair. I remember what it was like to hear my friend, a straight-A achiever, tell me about how he'd hide under his blanket because he couldn't summon the strength to go to work. I could tell how much it hurt, how embarrassed he felt, ashamed. I had just reached a point with work where it was just like too overwhelming for me, like personally. In the morning, I would like get up, 
for work. I'd go, take a shower, get dressed, and I had this like long hallway in my apartment. Um, and so I would like get out of my room, walk down the hallway to like get to over by the door I'm gonna leave. And I would just like fall on the ground in the hallway. <laughs> and I'd be like, God, I can't do this. Like I can't. I can't, like it's too like it's too hard and I'm so overwhelmed and I don't know what to do. God help. Help. Eventually, Gofen told his supervisors about his depression. They were really supportive. He started counseling, considered taking a leave of absence, and he finally started processing everything. Gofen was 28. It had been nearly 10 years since he'd first seen invisible children, since he'd resolved to become an advocate, and he couldn't help but ask himself whether it was all worth it. He'd think about his college friends, who'd also set out into the world in hopes of doing good, and Gofen wondered where they found themselves 10 years later after all the idealism had worn out. It was easy to dwell on all the struggles, but even as he did, Gofen's mind was constantly being drawn back to his time in the Congo. He thought a lot about how in the midst of some of the darkest moments came some of the most humanizing experiences, like when the power was out and people gathered and chatted and laughed and told stories. Whenever the power was out, was like, you get silly because you find fun things to do. <laughs> Cousins telling crazy stories or playing card games and laughing and whatnot. There was the time Gofen told his cousins the story of Lord of the Rings by candlelight. He'd say the lines in English, and his teenage cousin would translate. Even Gandalf's famous line, You shall not pass. There was the time Gofen, his mom, and his roommate Chris turned the flashlights on and munched on beignets as his mom told them her earliest memories of living in the U.S., and there was the time Gofen and Chris spent the night laughing hysterically about some obscure Shaquille O'Neal quotes. And we were just like laughing like crazy people. <laughs> and it was like, it doesn't even make sense. But like, we would just like laugh and just be silly. And like, that's what the power was out. The power being out was like this place. It was this place in which people actually were people interacting with one another and like, yeah, just like being a community, you know? Family time. That was just, I mean, that was, that was really concentrated family time. Looking back on his time in the Congo, Gofen can't help but smile. From where he sits, the Congolese story is a story of joy, undergirded by a deep pain. But even deeper still is hope, a hope that endures no matter how dark things get. Remembering Congo, the good and the bad, encouraged Gofen to keep persevering. It reminded him he did still want to keep fighting for others. But maybe the way to do that looked less like the path he was on, and more like the one that had inspired him in the first place. So maybe telling stories could be his way of speaking up, of bringing people together. Like when the power is out in Kinshasa. I mean, it's great in Congo. Like I always say, it's an adventure. And my mom would say before we went on our on the trip, 
when we're trying to like figure out like what it's going to be like or whatever, she's, she would always say like, um, you'll have, you'll have your own story to tell. Like, I can't tell your story. You'll go and you'll see, and you'll have your own story to tell. And it was like, I have my own story to tell now. <laughs> Yes. Yes. You hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Cool. What's up, man? Man, what is up? In early 2016, Gofen applied to work as a producer at a podcasting company in Brooklyn, <laughs> telling people stories. It would mean leaving his legal career, the one he had spent the better part of a decade training for and working in. A couple of days before his final interview, Gofen and his friend Luke hopped on a Skype call to chat. Luke asked him to imagine what might happen if he made the career switch. Okay. This is being recorded. This is good. All right. So you get the job at Gimlet for three months. You're like, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm learning. It's hard. You're working all the time. You're being challenged. But like then the fourth month hits, your living situation's hard. You're tired. You're not making enough money. The newness is worn off. Why do you want this? Why Why is it worth it? Oh, man. <laughs> um, it's worth it to learn how to tell good stories. Um, because that's how people connect with each other. Um, especially people that aren't supposed to be together, like people that are supposed to hate each other or people that just like have no knowledge or no reason to care about each other, the way they connect is through story. And if you learn that, you learn how to get to people's hearts and like inspire them to do the things that matter, which is love your neighbor, including the ones that are way over there. And it's like that, that's why like, yeah. Say that. Say all that. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to The Powers Out. As some of you know, I did end up getting that job in Brooklyn podcasting, and I moved here to Brooklyn about a year ago now. Um, I still do this podcast, Powers Out, in my free time just as a way to explore some of the stories that encourage me and challenge me the most. Um, a big, huge thanks to my friend Austin Danhouse, who narrated this episode. Um, a special thanks to Tom Cody, and also to Jared Arnold, who wrote the new intro music for the show. Um, remember that there's a full transcript of every episode on the Powers Out website, which is thepowersoutpodcast.com. If you like the show, you should go, or even if you don't like it, you should go into the iTunes store and write me a review. It'll be really helpful so that other people can eventually find the show and listen to it as well. Um, also, I've set up a voicemail line to get your reactions, thoughts, responses, all that good stuff. So if you want to call that, the number is 347-688-3501. It's 347-688-3501. Um, and yeah, I'll see you in a couple of weeks with another story. Thanks again. Please leave your message. 
Hi, my name is Mulata Moba. I am Gofen's mom, and I'm calling from Jackson, Tennessee. The Power Is Out is produced by Ngofen and Putubwele. Mixing by Brandon Buller. Music today by Tom Cody, Jer Arnold, Lee Rosevere, Andy Cohen, and Ryan Little. Check out the episode description for the full music credits. And see you next episode.